Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eden. Today I'm going to be talking with Meryl Seacrest about her new book, Elsa Schiaparelli, A Biography. Hi, Meryl. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. One of the interesting things in doing these interviews is that we get writers in such different stages of their careers and from such different fields. So I wonder if you could start out by telling us a bit about your amazing career and how you got started in journalism, and then from there, how you began writing biographies. Gosh, that's um, that's a, <laughs> that's quite a big order. <laughs> well, uh, let's make it brief. Um, um, my parents and I—I I was born in England, as you probably know—and um, and grew up in Bath in the Somerset. And my parents and I emigrated to Canada when I was eighteen, and I started in journalism. Um, at the age of 19, working for a very small paper, um, learned as I went along, uh, and uh, slowly worked my way up to a decent newspaper, larger newspapers. Uh, I ended up at the Washington Post and was there for uh, officially and unofficially about 15 years. While I was there, uh, I started doing profiles of, of people. It was in the days when profile, the profile interview was something of a, a, form, a special form all of it. All, all by itself, uh, it's fallen into some kind of disuse, which is a shame, really. But I, I enjoyed it. I, I got a lot of, of, of um, interesting assignments, um, including uh, people like um, Kenneth Clark, the British art historian, Salvador Dali. Um, I didn't didn't write about Frank. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright for the Post, but I ended up doing a book about him. And uh, really, people in in the arts, in in theater, in a lot in art, uh, a lot in the art market, art dealing. So uh, that became a particular interest of mine. And uh, eventually, I uh, got always wanted to write fiction (laughs) wrote a book that nobody wanted to publish and then I found something that was fiction all by itself and really it was a a life of a very uh, interesting minor American painter who lived her life in Europe so here am I a transplanted English woman now living in America and she was an American who made her reputation in in France and Italy so it was sort of a natural for me, and her her life was really like the, the Victorian horror story. It was a really terrible life. So I I took a chance on it, and it did pretty well with it. And uh, left left the Washington Post, took up biography full time. That was forty years ago. So my my latest book is uh, my eleventh. 
in 40 years. Wow. So, you know, people people say, you're a journalist. And I say, I think I've graduated to being a biographer <laughs> at this point. <laughs> so what drew you to Scaparelli as a biographical subject? I know that she's m- sort of moving in the milieu with a lot of the other people that you've written yes. about. Was it that? Yeah. Well, there were two reasons, really. Um, um, all these things get done in a kind of funny way. I, I did a, a book on Salvador Dali in 1985, and it was just at the time when people were discovering all the fakes, and he painted, and he'd been in a fire, and it was a, kind of a farce book. You know, I raced in France and and, and Spain and did a lot of work on that as as uh, very fast news reporting. The book came out the next year. It was a quick book, but it it made a lot of money and was translated into a lot of languages. So I guess you could say that was really my my first uh, bestseller. And in the process of writing about Dali, um, I'm I'm first heard about Elsa Scaparelli and the kinds of, of clothes that she had designed and how original she was and how much of a surrealist she was. And, and it's, her name is stuck in my mind. So eventually, you know, years and years go by and I'm thinking about this woman and I'm thinking, well, she's a dress designer mostly, but there's more than that to her. She's also an artist. And I have been working for the last 25 years with the same editor. So that's really the second second aspect of what I do because I can't really write a book unless my editor likes it too. And she works for Knopf, so it's a house you wouldn't want to leave, you know, all kinds of things. And I was talking to her about Scaparelli, and she said... Oh, yes, she said. I've always wanted to do a book about Scaparelli. So it was just one of those situations, you know. It's one of those things that life is telling you, I think there's an opportunity here. So that's why I did it. And I loved the story, too, about the museum exhibit catalog and using that, because museum exhibits are sort of a fleeting, transient thing that if you miss them... Yeah, this is kind of a way of pulling that into a concrete book um, and then connecting that to the life. I thought that was a really fascinating connection there. Yes, well, it was very interesting because um, the the curator for that show, which was put on by the Philadelphia Museum of Art um, 12 years ago now, was um, Dillis Blum. And uh, we talked, she's an American, but it turned out that she, Dillis, is Welsh named, don't you know? So uh, we, we got very friendly and I asked Dillis why she hadn't written a biography of of Elsa Scaparelli while she was at it and she I she, I think that it just didn't suit her temperament and she really she found out some things she didn't like she was very concerned about what um, Elsa was doing during World War Two, which of course is a long way a long time ago now but on the other hand you know, you've always got to think about the family. How would the family feel if some very un, 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 um, 
unpleasant news was discovered about your subject, and and Dillis was in an awkward situation. She was putting on a big show. She was, she she needed everyone's cooperation, I guess. So she decided she wasn't going to do it, but she. She was very sweet about it, and she said and she would help me. So, you know, that, that again is the kind of thing that you always hope for in biography. Uh, once upon a time, I could call someone up and say, this is Meryl Secret calling I'm with the Washington Post, and I'd like to interview you. <laughs> and uh, when I left the paper, I'd have to say, this is Meryl Secret calling, and they'd say, Meryl Secrets, you know, just wanted to have a big name behind me. So it gets ever so much harder yeah. to do a part <laughs> when nobody knows who you are. Uh, so I guess you could say it was just, it was just dumb luck, really. Mm-hmm. And, and you, all, you always have to, if you're a biography, you have to look and say, is there something in print already? And there really wasn't much. There was her memoir, which had been, you know, that had been written 60 years ago now. And the, the V&A, by the way, uh, did a reprint not very long ago. And it's good, good book as far as it goes, but memoirs, you know. Yes. Memoirs are memoirs. They tell you what your subject, the subject wants you to know, not necessarily what happened. Mm-hmm. And there was another book called, um, oh dear, I'm blanking on the name anyway, Empress of Fashion, mm-hmm. which was a very good book, but was also not a particularly reliable one because it uh, it was entirely based on the memoir, the, the memoir of Elsa's only child, uh, Gogo, and and that wasn't very reliable anyway, as it turned out. So so that was fun because you know, uh, as a biography, you, you really don't want to be. Um, uh, how should I say this? Just rewriting someone else. Right. You want to to have original an original contribution. And if you're not going to have an original contribution, why write the book? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So, so there 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 are all kinds of factors having to do with why you would take a particular subject. It's a good question. Mm-hmm. I get that. I get asked that. Uh, oh well, what what subject do you want to do next? And isn't it wonderful you can choose any subject you want? And the answer to that is no, you yes, can't. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'd rather pick you. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, it's always it's it's fun. It's yeah. always fun. And it was always a voyage. And the fun part is doing the investigating. And the hard part is sitting down and writing it. (laughs) Amen. Um, (laughs) You mentioned the unreliability of memoir. And I think that's so interesting when biographers engage with that and really dig into the... and, And I think you do an interesting job, especially at the beginning, where you're kind of unpacking stories that she's... That Scaparelli wrote and then saying, well, actually, it probably happened like this instead and positing different versions of it. Um, yeah, and that's so. Yeah. As a reader, that really adds a, a complexity to your understanding of the biographical subject, rather than just taking their words and throwing them back at you. Oh. Well, you know, I'm so glad you said that. I think I've I've loved biography, and I've read it all my life, and and not really adored it. But I have discovered that 
biographers tend to have a point of view and they will support that point of view with evidence, the certain evidence, and perhaps sometimes withhold other evidence. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't terribly like that way of doing things. I've never really liked it. Um, I wrote about a very, essentially very unsympathetic subject uh, my first time around, Romain Brock, uh, who was in many ways kind of an impossibly difficult person. And I was very, very concerned that I would be giving the wrong, that people wouldn't like this subject matter, you know. And, uh, and but it's, yeah, feature writing is quite different from from writing book. And one of the most interesting things about feature writing is you really do have to take a kind of point of view and sustain it through 3,000 words or whatever it is. But if you're doing a book, well, I've done pretty big manuscripts, you know, 150,000 words. And if and, and that's a bigger painting, and uh, I, I'm sorry, I try to think, I end up thinking of it visually, and you can, you can put in a lot of detail in that big picture that you can't do with a feet, with a small, a small work. And if you, if you are, if you are perfectly, um, what's the word, faithful to everything you have learned, it turns out all right. It's an amazing thing. The same thing happened with Bernard Berenson, who isn't a very uh, good subject either, really. But with Remain, I got this kind of capsule thing, story of an indomitable woman who rose above her handicaps, you know, and I'm thinking, is it? You know? <laughs> Oh, you know, I never knew I'd written that. <laughs> so, so there we are. You know, but I, I, I think that uh, the same is true. Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, I love the subject of Frank Lloyd Wright. I would write it again tomorrow if I had the energy. It is divine. It's like Balzac. It's the great American life. You know, it's. It's, it's a genius. It's fire. It's murder. It's arson. It's poverty. It's jail. I mean, it's in, incredible that life, and it goes on for ninety-seven years. You know. <laughs> oh dear, that that was the great American life. That that is my. That's the subject I most enjoyed writing about. When I came to the end, I thought. I wouldn't mind starting all over again, so that just shows you how crazy I yeah, am. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. <laughs> I always want the reader to do that with the book. I never thought about doing yeah. that as a writer. Well, you know, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's telling a story, isn't it? Yeah. I um, I'll tell you something that I haven't told anybody ever, and that was when I was a little girl. I used to well, every all little girls love stories, but. I like to tell stories. And when I was in kindergarten, at the end of the afternoon, the teacher would say, would you like to come and tell a story to me? And I would go and tell a story to my (laughs) class. And every day was a different story. And I would, I just start and I would see the story unfolding, you know, sort of on a stage. And I tell, I just, 
talk about what I saw. And apparently the children loved it because every day I used to tell a story. And I lost, uh, when, I, uh, when I started going into puberty, I lost it. It went. So I couldn't invent stories anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when I turned to other people's stories. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> Did you find Scaparelli hard, a difficult person to write about? Was she difficult uh, and yes. evasive? Mm-hmm. Yes, she is. Uh, she's a difficult person. We can't know her very well mm-hmm. because her she didn't really write. Well, she must have written letters, but I, I darn if I could find any. And and she didn't have um, uh, she didn't have a diary. That's what you hope for. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be bliss. Yeah. I've only ever had it once before, and. Gosh, it does. You really feel you know a person when you read their diaries. Mm-hmm. Of course, they, they, you don't. But, you know, nobody writes diaries anymore. Yeah. That's the thing of it. Uh, and uh, so I had to, I had to put together a picture of her in my mind based on what she had said mm-hmm. in her memoir and based on what she did and the people who had known her. Of course, you know, now there aren't so many left alive who did. And the, the only other person who was very, very helpful was a woman uh, whom she had uh, had used as her kind of uh, second-in-command, mm-hmm. uh, an American girl named Bettina Shaw Jones, who, as you know, probably know, having read my book, came from Long Island, she was Long Island socialite, and Bettina was the chronicler, Bettina mm-hmm. was the compulsive letter writer and diarist, and uh, I had, I known Bettina, I met her years ago in Paris, and, and I adored her. She was a wonderful person, marvelous, marvelous original mind. And uh, so when I knew that I was going to be writing about Scamparelli, I thought, this is just great. I'll just use Bettina's diaries, which are now at Yale, and and so on, and and not with as much as I'd hoped. (laughs) (laughs) There never is. (laughs) Could not figure out how to say what her writing was. It was, <laughs> it was hideous. Kenneth Carr tells this great story about a friend of his. Uh, her name was Sybil Colfax, and she would she was a great hostess, and she would write postcards there, and she'd write 20 postcards between 8 and 9 every morning, and most of them were, do come and have lunch, and they do come and have dinner. But every once in a while, she'd write a postcard to the library, and at the London Library, which... Uh, was a quasi-private uh, mm-hmm. institution, and uh, she would ask for a book. And the, the librarian would look at her writing, <laughs> couldn't make head or tail of it, and he'd, <laughs> he'd put it up on the bulletin board behind him, and every once in a while he'd pick up look at it to see whether it's all these squirrels had fallen into place or not. <laughs> Never did. Well, that was what I was trying to do with Bettina. I'd go, go back to my to my dicks and I'd look at it and I'd think, what? <laughs> oh, dear. That was, that was such a pity. So I, I got bits of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you got was amazing because she has a great wry voice that's really, really fun to read. 
<laughs> She's wonderful. She really is. And she tells marvelous stories. Mm-hmm. I love her story. <laughs> anyway, there we are. <laughs> so so that's what I did and it was it was a very interesting the reaction was very interesting because um I what the book was was reviewed by several fashion editors and uh and that was sad because fashion editors really aren't very interested in social in fashion history. They're not fashion historians. They're not looking for broad trends. They're not looking for social implications. Yeah. They're really only interested in what did you do yesterday or the you know, the day before yesterday. When I was a journalist I used to come into the office in the morning and I'd have a I have a story on the front page of the star section, which is where I worked. And my, my editor would say, half-joking to me, that was a great story you did for us this morning, Meryl, but what have you done for us lately? You know? <laughs> and fashion editors are the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're only interested in what happened five minutes ago. And having written it, it's dead as far as that, they're concerned. So so you can imagine the reaction was Caparelli. Nobody was in interested Scaparelli. But the people who were interested, very interesting, was the the um, newspaper side, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and the Economist, you know, you would think, you wouldn't think they'd be interested in Scaparelli, but they were. It was fascinating stuff. And and the other people who are interested are Young students of fashion. Mm-hmm. Now that blew my mind. <laughs> and they, I went, I, I, uh, well, I lectured at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, mm-hmm. and those are all students of fashion. And they w- couldn't get enough of this story. They were mesmerized by it. They did something that that I've never had happen to me before, and it's a little unnerving. When I was was signing books, they were kind of touching me, you know, and and they and they wanted to know about the brooch I was wearing, which was a scaparelli brooch. It was uh, quite foreign to my experience. I had that the other night too. Mm-hmm. Uh, women. The w- women audiences love this story because, first of all, it's a story. Yeah. I mean, this is somebody who who battled against the odds. She was an amazing figure in the thirties. How do you get there? Well, you don't get there just by sleeping with people. Of right. course, I suppose that helps, you know. But you've got to have a lot of talent. Yeah, she was extraordinary, and she survived World War Two the way very practical people did. She she played the game the way she thought it had to be played and somehow she kept her business and she kept her house um, you know and and at the end of uh, the end of her career uh, she'd lost her way that's for sure but she wasn't really into Dior you, mm-hmm. you know uh, Dior wanted uh, women to sit on pillows and wear hats and gloves and things, you know. And that was not Elsa. No. That was not our Elsa. She was quite something else. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I, I had a, I had a lot of fun with her. I thought she was a wonderful figure, and I tried very hard to put her, in, put her in the context of her age. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's something else that doesn't always happen in the biography. Right. The, I am looking at her with the eyes of a modern-day woman. Mm-hmm. I can't help it. But that doesn't mean that I have to imagine her in the context of 2015. No, I should be imagining her in the context of 1919, 1925, 1936. You know, I should somehow get myself back into thinking about those historical periods yeah. and and how she would react. And and that that does help, you know. Indeed. If you can imagine, and uh, anyone who's writing about the 60s and 70s, you know, which I I experienced, I I reported every day for the Washington Mm -hmm. Post, uh, needs to see that the person in that context. And there's nothing, nothing that works better than just reading old newspapers, you know. Exactly. It's so funny, though, because I think in a story like this one, reading it as a modern reader, it's still kind of shocking in our own context for someone to be this successful and work that hard and to have this story of this amazing woman. So then when you project it back 70 or 80 years, it's it's triply shocking that she was able to do so much and her, especially because her clothes seem so modern to this day. And there are these, she's, the innovation of the exposed zipper and the wrap dresses, which we have now. And it's don't amazing. you love, I just love the mouse that turns out to be a pocket. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is so clever. <laughs> and and uh, she really, she was always challenging assertions, mm-hmm. which makes her an artist, I think, yes. because that's what artists do. They're always trying to get us to look at things with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. And and she certainly did that. Well, I'm so glad you, you think her stuff is still modern. No fashion editors don't. I think it's amazing. Well, what do they know? Yes. <laughs> well, we're all shopping at H&M. If we could be wearing extraordinary <laughs> fabrics like that, it would be amazing. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yes, I think you say at the beginning of your book that every, now everybody wants to look the same, and at the time they didn't, and it was to look casual and yet completely frivolous. Yes. I think that's, that's wonderful to look comfortable doing it. <laughs> <laughs> to have a pocket for your flask in your ball gown. Yes, oh, it's not fun. People Absolutely. always roar with laughter when I tell them that one. <laughs> so as a last question, you mentioned that there are some unknowns about her, things that we just can't be sure of. And I wondered, as a biographer, how do you handle the unknowns that remain? Well, you know... <laughs> I have come to terms with it. It used to drive me crazy. Uh, uh, and I used to try to cross every T and dot every I. And I remember one time when um, I was working on Bernard Berenson and I was very much interested in the importance of of his Lithuanian uh, Jewish background in the context of who he became and, and what he did. And uh, he, his parents emigrated to Boston, and they were there in very humble circumstances, and uh, um, he managed to get free education because he was such a clever boy. But I was there, it was very important to me to know how seriously I should take the fact that, that his father and mother were Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, one, one day, 
I discovered that that Berenson had never taken his bar mitzvah, and I rushed up to my husband, who's who works at home too. And I said, and he he he'd gone to Harvard, and Berenson went to Harvard, mm-hmm. and, and you know all kinds of things like that. So he was monitoring my progress very closely, and I rushed up to him and said. Darling, I've just discovered that Berenson never took his bar mitzvah. And he looked at me in such a kind way, you know, that I, I knew I'd gone too far. And he really didn't care whether Berenson took his bar mitzvah or not. So, so that, that has kind of influenced me ever since, uh, to look for the relevant mm-hmm. anecdote and not to try to throw it all in because, oh, you're probably just going to bore you read it to death. Yes, <laughs> I have learned that the hard way too. Yeah, so, so to get back to your question, in the end, you have to, even if you had, even if you knew absolutely everything about your subject, and I came pretty close to knowing everything about Franklin Drive, you then have to look at it all and say, how can I turn this into a narrative? Mm-hmm. And some things you you just have gonna have to get rid of because they don't fit. Yeah. And there are other things that you're just gonna have to say to your reader one way or the other, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, with my first subject, Remain Brooks, she, in her memoir, she says that she became pregnant, she was raped and became pregnant and had a child, um, which was, which she gave to a convent. Well, I would have liked to have used that. Mm-hmm. And I do say, I do quote her as having said that, but I then have to tell my reader that I could not find any evidence of this child mm-hmm. or any proof that she ever had it. So was she was she just embellishing the story about her? She tended to see herself as ill-used anyway, don't you see? Mm-hmm. So you couldn't really be sure. So I have had to say, I don't know. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Not at all. I think it's really important. <laughs> so there we are. I, I hope I've helped you a bit. It's it's actually great fun to talk about biography because it's it's really quite a fascinating business to yes. find out about somebody's life. And then what do you do with it? You mm-hmm. know, and how do you phrase it? And how do you make it? How do you make it interesting for your reader, which is essentially, you know, what I do? Yeah. Uh, there, there are many different kinds of biographies, many ways of doing things. There is the chronicle, and if it's a chronicle, that's a different kind of book. Mm-hmm. But and then there's the scholarly approach, and you know, I write for a general audience, so so I, I'm I'm looking at it rather differently. I'm always hoping that my reader will turn the page, and I I I think that's a good thing to think about. Yes, definitely. Are you boring your reader? Am I being boring? To get back to my poor husband, so I haven't mentioned Aronson's bar mitzvah to him ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for having me. Of course, fun. thank you so much for joining me. 
I've been talking today with Meryl Seacrest about her new book, Elsa Scaparelli, A Biography. I'm Olai Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>